Welcome to Beth Adonai on this fine Shabbat morning. This is uh, December the 7th, which I think that's Pearl Harbor Day, if I'm not mistaken. And um, it's also um, Kislev 9. We're getting very close to Kislev 25, which is the uh, beginning of Hanukkah. So um, I'm going to be your teacher. I'm Bobby Smith for the next um, three weeks. Uh, and for the next two weeks, we're going to go over the, the Torah portions. And then on my third week, we will do a, a Hanukkah teaching, since we're right there at the beginning of Hanukkah on that uh, third Shabbat. So let's begin, as we should always begin, with a word of prayer. Avinu Shabbat Shemayim, our Father in heaven. Father, thank you so much for this glorious Shabbat day that you've given us today, for the health to be able to be here today. Thank you for allowing us to wake up this morning and for for just the simple things, Father. Thanking you for all the things that you do for us is, is appropriate. Father, be with us this day as we go through our services here at Beth Adonai and our classes this afternoon. Be with us as we, um, as we go out into the world as we leave this place. May the word that uh, I'm giving today be all about you and in your honor. In Yeshua's name I pray, amen. So our Torah portion's title is um, Vayetze. It is the story, uh, we're, we're, we're in the story of Jacob. We're, in, we're still in the book of Genesis. And um, Vayetze means, and he went out. So um, there's so many different ways you can teach on a Torah portion because there's so much richness in each Torah portion. Um, Joseph Shulam runs a messianic congregation in Israel called Netivah. He does a lot of great work in his teachings and he, if you haven't got his um, or haven't gone to his website or ever visited his website before, it would be worth your while and he actually sends emails out each week on the Torah portion. And he's got all different ways you can take this Torah portion this week. Um, some of the things that he says or some of the things that he teaches on are Jacob's departure in God's service to him and how to deal with brotherly conflict. Jacob's dream and what that means. And God will meet us where we're at. And just beautiful lessons on all these topics and what Jacob represents. Basically, when I teach on a Torah portion, and what I've been doing here at Bethel and I is to kind of look at it from an overall viewpoint and try to get as much of the Torah portion covered as possible in the hour that I'm given. So um, the sources that I've used this morning are FFOZ, uh, Art Scroll Humash, and also the, uh, since this Torah portion is about Jacob's ladder, or the ladder of Jacob, there's a, a website called The Ladder of Jacob, which is a messianic website. And I used a lot from, from, from them. So, let's begin. FFOZ Torah Club has a neat introduction to this week's Torah portion. And it, it goes like this. Jacob went out from Beersheba. This portion tells of Jacob's flight from his brother Esau. His vision at Bethel his employment with his uncle Laban, and his marriage to the two sisters, Rachel and Leah. Jacob's double marriage results in the birth of 12 sons and one daughter. Art Scroll Humash 
has this to say. Jacob had left his parents to begin a personal exile that unknown to him at the time would include 20 years in the, in the home of Laban, who, as the Passover Haggadah says, attempted to uproot the Jewish people. Before going to Haran, Jacob spent 14 years at the Academy of Shem and Ever. In fact, the sages deduce from the chron a fact that the sages deduce from the chronology of this period. The thought is that to survive spiritually in the land of Haran, among people who were Laban's comrades in dishonesty, he needed the Torah of Shem and Ever. For they too had been forced to cope with the corrosive surroundings. Shem lived in the generation of the flood, and Ever lived with those who built the Tower of Babel. Jacob's 14 years in their tutelage made it possible for him to emerge spiritually unscathed from his personal exile. Obviously, this is a midrash. There's nothing in scripture that tells us that there was ever even a... Um, a uh, shul of Shem or a, uh, a synagogue of Shem. But there is a thought in Jewish um, tradition that that's, that that's possible. This analogy absolutely is not scriptural. We are not given these details in the Torah. The sages are engaged in midrash and conjecture when they give us this type of information. I'm not saying it's not true, and I'm not saying it is true. We at Beth Ad and I believe that you should be careful with commentary. Discern from the text of the scriptures and utilize commentary only after you are well grounded in the text. If you are connected to God spiritually through his Ruach, his spirit, and his son, you can rely on them for, for truth and discernment when you are engrossed in their Torah. This particular Midrash I found in Baal Hatarim Kumash Bereshit, which is the probable source that Art Straw used in that analogy. Walk Genesis by Jeffrey um, Enoch Feinberg is another source that I use. Jacob went to Haran, his ancestral home at the crossroads. Along the way at Bethel, the Lord promises a safe journey. He exits to avoid the household assimilation facing Esau and Canaan. At Haran, he will meet and wish to marry Rachel. But his scheming uncle, Laban, has other ideas. Yaakov will be delayed from returning for 20 years and will nearly assimilate into Nacor's heathen nation in exile. In the end, angels in Makanaim will welcome Yaakov back to the land. Jacob expected that his exile in Canaan might last a year, perhaps two years. He could not have guessed that he would be absent from the land of promise for over two decades. The deeds of the forefathers portents for the children. Jacob left the land of Canaan to escape his brother Esau. Jacob's departure and 20-year exile in Aram portended the exile of the children of, from, of Israel from the land of Israel. In the days of the prophets, the Assyrians and the Babylonians paid a, played the part of Esau. They deported the people of Israel and Judah from their land and scattered them across the Middle East. 
many of Jacob's children found themselves living in, captiv in captivity in Mesopotamia. It happened a second time in the days of the apostles. Like Esau hunting down Jacob, the Roman Empire pounced on the Jewish people, forcing them to flee from the Promised Land. The rabbis refer to the exile that began under Rome as the Edomite exile, a reference to Jacob fleeing Esau. The Edomite exile has endured now for almost 2,000 years. When Jacob arrived at Bethel, he did not have a pillow on which to lay his head. When he crossed over the Jordan River, he only had his staff in his hand. Isaac sent him out with a blessing. Why did Jacob leave his father's house empty-handed? Remember, he was going to get a bride. Typically, when you go to get a bribe, you take a dowry with you. You take, um, like whenever um, Abraham sent out his servant to find a bride for Isaac, he, he went with gifts. When Abraham sent his servant Eleazar to Haran, he sent him with ten camels loaded with gifts to fetch a bride for Isaac. Why did Isaac send Jacob to Haran looking for a bride with not so much as a single camel nothing but a staff and his cloak. One tradition explains that Esau sent his eldest son in pursuit of Jacob to murder him on the road. Esau's, Esau's sons overtook Jacob, but he had mercy on his uncle. He spared his life and satisfied himself by robbing him. So maybe he did send him with something. There's another conjecture. That's another commentary. Just as the, as the Kumash example, be careful of these traditions that are not in the scriptures. Discern from the text of the scriptures and utilize commentary only after you are well grounded in the text. If you are connected to God spiritually, then you will find truth. The division of the Parsha, as all Parshas are, are uh, divided, is in seven sections. I don't know if you can read that or not. That's pretty small, but this as large as, as I could get it. This is Jeff, Jeffrey Enoch Steinberg's breakdown of the Parsha. The, um, um, in the synagogue each week, the, the Parsha would be read by seven readers. And the whole entire Parsha, and this is the way it would have been broken down. As I've said so many times in the past, the complete Jewish Bible does a great job of, um, of breaking this down, down for us. So these are Jacob's journeys. Jacob's flight from Canaan to Haran seemed like two steps backward in the plan of God. On the contrary, God would use Jacob's years of exile to prosper him. The heads of the tribes of Israel were born to Jacob while he tarried in Haran. God remained with him, watched over him, and prospered him. By the end of this week's Torah reading, Jacob will return to Canaan wealthy and successful. Jacob teaches us to be faithful wherever we find ourselves and to keep committing ourselves to the care of God. Jacob's term of service in Laban's household resulted in the birth of the nation of Israel. For the purpose of the narrative, it would have been sufficient to say merely he went to Haran. Therefore, the sages infer that Jacob's departure from Beersheba had a significance of its own. A righteous person 
departure from a place leaves a void. As long as he lives in the city, he constitutes its glory, its splendor, and its beauty. When he departs, its glory, splendor, and beauty depart with him. That was a commentary by Rashi. It says that Jacob stopped at the place. Jacob was going to Haran to find a bride, but in reality, he was fleeing from the wrath of Esau. It must have been painful for Jacob to leave the land of promise. His passion for the covenant promise given to Abraham had led him to deceive his father and more or less swindle his brother. Rather than achieving his goal of being an inheritor of the land and the Abrahamic promises, his behavior resulted in exile. He must have felt foolish and dispirited. While on the way to Haran, he stopped at a place for the night. Genesis 28:11. He encountered a place, and he spent the night there because their sun had set. He took from the stones of the place which, which he arranged around his head and lay down in that place. While on the way to Haran, he stopped at this place for the night. The place where Jacob spent the night was possibly on the top of Mount Moriah, the future location of the Holy Temple of Jerusalem. This fact is disputed, and the Bible tells us he spent the night in Bethel, which is 10 miles north of Mount Moriah. The Artstro Humar says that this place was Mount Moriah, the site where Abraham bound Isaac on the altar and where the temple would later stand. Since this verse states that this took place just before he retired for the night, the sages credit Jacob with instituting the evening prayer. All the patriarchs are actually associated with one of the three times of daily prayer. Judaism observes three times of daily prayer. The morning prayer, which is called Shakarit, the afternoon prayer, which is called Minka, and the evening prayer, which is called Marib. The morning and afternoon prayer times correspond to the sacrificial services in the temple. But Talmudic tradition associates each of the three times of prayer with one of the three patriarchs. Jacob is credited with instituting the evening prayers. Abraham is credited with the morning prayer and Isaac is credited with the evening prayer. If you want to learn the prayers for each of these three prayer times, you should acquire a seduber. This will lead you in the proper prayers for the proper times. Jacob took the stones of that place and put a stone under his head for a pillow. Our master alluded to this passage when he said, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Matthew 8.20. Since we've been believers, we've uh, heard stories or read Bible stories, been taught in Sunday school or Shabbat school about um, the ladder of Jacob. It's a lot different when you're looking at it from a Jewish perspective than it is from a Christian perspective. Genesis 28.12 says, And he dreamt, and behold... A ladder was set earthward, and its top reached heavenward. And behold, angels were ascending and descending upon it. Sleeping on the ground while fleeing for his life, Jacob was certainly lowly and contrite. The vision of the ladder, of the ladder showed him 
that the distance between heaven and earth can be spanned. The latter can be understood as a metaphor for the ways that we connect with God. And those ways are prayer, faith, obedience, revelation, and Messiah. The dreams mentioned in the scripture are vehicles of prophecy. Otherwise, the Torah, which uses words sparingly, would not cite them. Jacob's dream at Mount Moriah symbolized the future of the Jewish people and man's ability to connect himself with God's plan. These are some of the interpretations. Mount Sinai, the interpretations of the latter. The latter alludes to Sinai, since the Hebrew words Sinai and Sulam, Sulam meaning ladder, the Hebrew word for ladder, both have the numerical value of 130. This is pretty interesting. Actually, this is from uh, Ladder of Jacob. The angels represent Moses and Aaron, and God stood atop the ladder just as he stood atop Sinai to give the Torah. This is a midrash. According to the Torah, given at Sinai and taught by the sages such as Moses and Aaron, it is the bridge from heaven to earth. There is the... Um, thought of the four kingdoms. Jacob was shown the guardian angels of the four kingdoms that would ascend to dominate Israel. Jacob saw each angel climbing a number of rungs corresponding to the years of dominion and then descending as its reign ended. Babylon's angel climbed 70 rungs and went down. Medea's angel 52, Greece's 130, but the angel of Edom slash Esau kept climbing indefinitely, symbolizing the current exile, which seems to be endless. Jacob was frightened until God reassured him that he would receive divine protection and eventually return to the land. Another interpretation is the land's greatness. Back to that. Jacob was shown that the angels that protected him in the land of Israel, Eretz Israel, were going back up to heaven and were being replaced by lesser angels which could escort him while outside the land. This process would be reversed when he returned to the land. This vision instilled in him a recognition of the great holiness of the land and, it, and a desire to return to it. That was an interpretation by Rashi. Another interpretation is Jacob's uniqueness. The angels which are God's agents in carrying out God's guidance of earthly affairs, constantly go up to heaven to receive his commands and then come back to earth to carry them out. As it were, Jacob and the Jewish nation, however, are under the direct guidance of God, who is atop the ladder. That is Rambam. This raises an interesting question. Since angels have wings and the ability to fly, why would they need a ladder? We'll explore this interesting question. Heaven and earth are intertwined, as in the phrase, as above, so below, or on earth as it is in heaven. But how is this possible? How is it possible that infinite light can connect to finite matter? There must be a bridge, a ladder, a conduit throughout which all prayers ascend. On Mount Sinai, Hashem tore apart firmaments and descended upon a mountain. At that moment, heaven and earth were connected. Incredibly, 
The gematria of the word Sinai is equivalent to Sulam, like we said earlier. Mount Sinai and the ladder of Jacob are intimately related. The rabbis related it to Sinai, and he dreamed, and behold, a ladder symbolizes Sinai, set upon the earth, as it says, and they stood at the nether part of the mount, and the top of it reached to heaven, and the mountain burned with fire unto the, hev the heart of heaven. And behold, the angels of God alludes to Moses and Aaron, ascending, and Moses went up to God, and descending, and Moses went down from the mount. And behold, the Lord stood beside him, and the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai. The Midrash Rabbah goes on to connect the ladder to the temple. The temple is the place, Makom, where heaven and earth connect. Noting the parallels between the principle of the Gerzah Sheva, the Midrash says, Bar Kaprath taught, no dream is without its interpretation. And behold, a ladder symbolizes the stairway set upon the earth. The altar, as, as it says, an altar on earth shall be made upon me. An altar of the earth thou shalt make unto me, he says in Exodus 20, 21. And the top of it reached to heaven the sacrifices, the odor of which ascended to heaven. And behold, the angels of the God, the high priest, ascending and descending upon it, and ascending and descending the stairway. And behold, the Lord stood beside him. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar. This is in Amos 9.1. Genesis Rabbah 68.12. Yaakov ben Ashar builds upon this. The gematria, and behold a ladder, is equivalent to the gematria of the phrase, this refers to the altar of the Ola offering. The letters, all the Hebrew letters, and behold angels can be rearranged to spell these are the Kohanim. For it is they who ascend and descend the ramp of the altar. In English, the Torah seems straightforward and simple. However, in Hebrew, using Jewish principles of interpretation, an entire web of hidden connections begin to emerge. Consider the following example. Rabbi Hiyah the elder and Rabbi Hanani disagreed. One maintained they were ascending and descending the ladder, while the other said they were ascending and descending on Jacob. Genesis Rabbah 68.12, to an English speaker the text of Genesis is clear. The angels were ascending and descending upon the ladder, not Jacob. In Hebrew, however, the situation is more complex. The passage says that the angels were ascending and descending, bow. The word bow here literally means on him. In English and Greek, there is a neutral, neutral gender. For example, the word table is neither masculine nor feminine. In other languages, like Spanish, the word table would be feminine, i.e., la mesa, literally the table. Hebrew is like Spanish in this regard. The question becomes, if the text means on him, who is the word him referring to? By the context, it would be Jacob. The Malbim says, according to the Midrash, this ladder has four rungs. 
Yaakov drew divine energy down through all four hierarchical channels of the upper realms, known in the Kabbalah as the words of Atzulis. Bira, creation, Yetzar, formation, and Aisha, action. Azulus means emanations. With this explanation in mind, an obscure Midrash suddenly becomes clear. The Midrash says that the angels of God were going up and down, not upon it. Hebrew having no gender-neutral pronoun, but upon him on Yaakov himself. Yaakov, through his deeds, regulates the divine flow from above. The angels go up and down on him, by him, and for him. He is the latter. The essential Mabim uh, Parsha Vietz, Mazora Publishing is where that came from. Jewish, Jacob in Ju Jewish mysticism refers to the Sefra Tifrat, which is the heart of Zer Anpin, which is the Holy Son. One Midrash says, there were 12 steps leading on the top of the ladder, and on each step to the top there were two human faces, one on the right and one on the left. 24 faces. Jacob not only saw the ladder and the angels, but when he peered up on the top of the ladder, he saw the face of a man carved out of fire, peering down at him. So too did Jacob see God fashioning the heavenly temple with his own hands out of jewels and pearls and the radiance of the Shekinah. Then Jacob peered into the highest heaven and saw God's throne. He saw that there was a face carved into the throne, and the face that Jacob saw there was his own. As Jacob ascended the ladder, his image became transformed. He became the earthly reflection of the heavenly reality. Jacob's dream about the ladder to heaven has inspired an abundance of mystical contemplation and commentary in both the Jewish and Christian sources. Teachers and interviewers use Jacob's ladder to symbolize a variety of things, which seem in some way to connect heaven and earth. For example, the ladder to heaven represents prayer, the temple, the Torah, the righteous Zadik, the mitzvah, the Messiah, and so on and so forth. Speaking of Messiah, Messiah ben Yosef. According to Kol HaTorah, the latter links Messiah ben Yosef. If you ever study, if you ever take Torah Club 2, I think, see the two or four. One of the two, you learn a lot about Messiah ben Yosef and Messiah um, ben David, okay? And basically, it kind of splits the Messiah into two different, um, um, you, can, you can almost say it's two different people, but it's not two different people. So when Yeshua came the first time, he was a suffering Messiah. He didn't come as a conquering Messiah, as, as Messiah ben David would, would be. Messiah ben Yosef was a suffering Messiah, and throughout the Torah, you see examples, in particular Joseph, and the sufferings that Joseph had for his brothers, Yeshua had a lot of suffering for, for, for his brothers. So when you hear the term Messiah ben Yosef versus Messiah ben, ben David, or, or David, you, uh, you have that, they're representing two different forms of the Messiah. 
Yeshua reveals the secret of the word bow on him that is hidden in Genesis. He identifies the word him as referring to himself. He said to him, Amen, I tell you, hereafter you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. This is John 1.51. It is Yeshua who is the gate, the conduit, the ladder, the connection between heaven and earth, the link between infinite light and finite matter. Messiah is the true ladder between heaven and earth. A nice picture from um, Jacob's Ladder, the website. Our master Yeshua contributed to the discussion when he told Nathaniel, Amen, amen, I say to you, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon man. Genesis 28:13, And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your descendants. God spoke to Jacob in the vision of the latter. He promised Jacob that he would be with him, keep him in all the places he was to go, and return him to the land of Canaan. More than that, he bestowed the covenant promises given to Abraham upon Jacob. Jacob feared leaving the land of Canaan because he feared forfeiting the promises God had made to Abraham and to Isaac. He remembered the story of how his grandfather, Abraham, refused to allow his father, Isaac, to leave the land. Remember, Isaac never left the land. Jacob felt that his attempt to attain the Abrahamic blessings and promises had completely backfired upon him. He had attempted to secure a claim to inherit the land, but now he was being driven from it. Jacob had a passion for the kingdom of God. He had a heart for the things of his fathers. We learned that in the last Parsha that Jacob's interest remained at home with the family while Esau craved adventure, conquest, and achievement. Jacob had an intuitive sense for the things of God. His heart belonged to the covenantal promises. Esau valued the covenantal promises so little that he traded his birthright for a bowl of soup. Jacob purchased Esau's birthright without trickery or deceit, but he used both trickery and deceit to procure his father's blessing. Though Jacob had already received the blessing from his father Isaac, he had done so under false pretenses. In the vision of the latter, God himself reiterates the blessings, assuring Jacob that he truly is the inheritor of the Abrahamic le legacy. Though Jacob was forced to leave the promised land, he did so knowing that God would ultimately bring him back and give the land to his descendants. Jacob's situation can be compared to a man who obtained the legal deed to a piece of property, in this case, the promised land, but he was not sure if the deed would stand up in a court of law. His adversary, Esau, also had a claim on the property. When the judge, Hashem, reviewed the deed and notarized it, endorsing the validity with his own signature, the man was confident that the property was indeed his. As believers, we are similar to Jacob. We have received the legal deed to a great inheritance, the salvation of our souls. One day our eyes will be opened to the splendor of heaven and God himself will endorse our claim. John 1, 12 through 13. 
But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. In Genesis 28, 14, it describes a dispersion. Your seed will also be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and in your seed shall all the family of the earth be blessed. Now just for a minute, imagine if the nation of Israel had not gone into exile. How would we as Gentiles be blessed by these people? It wouldn't happen. Wouldn't have happened. FFOZ calls this the oracle at Bethel. God is talking to Jacob in his dream, the latter. This particular verse is understood as the dispersion. Though the oracle at Bethel repeats the covenantal promises that God previously bestowed upon Abraham and Isaac, a significant change in the wording hints toward the future dispersion of the Jewish people. Genesis 28:14 predicts that the seed of Jacob will multiply and become as numerous and as uncountable as the dust of the earth, but it also indicates that they will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. This indicates that the people of Israel will one day inhabit the whole land, but the oracle also hints toward a future meaning. Not only will Jacob's seed inherit the land of Canaan, but they will also spread out in every direction across the earth when the Lord scatters Israel in the great diaspora of the Jewish exile. As Jacob descended into exile from Canaan, the Lord warned him that his descendants would also one day go into exile and spread out in all directions. And as we know, that definitely happened. And it still happened to this day. In some unexplained way, the scattering of Israel across the earth will bring blessing to the nations. The Lord repeated the universal promise that he had made first to Abraham in your seed you shall all you, in your seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed the exile of Israel brings redemption and blessing to all nations the Jewish people brought monotheism and the gospel message to the west to the east to the north and to the south so that all peoples can know the Messiah and find blessing in the seed of Abraham Isaac and Jacob the apostles took up that mission and initiated the process of spreading the seed of Jacob to all the nations. In some mystical sense, the suffering of Israel, the suffering servant of the Lord, Mashiach ben Yosef, in exile, also brings redemption for the nations. Paul says that Israel's transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles in Romans 11:12. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? In Romans 11:15, Where there is exile, there will be an ingathering. Genesis 28:15, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you, go, wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. It is so important to look at the scripture through Jewish eyes. If you don't, you just can't understand. It's, it's impossible. The Lord promised Jacob that he would be with him and protect him in his journeys and return him safely to the land of Canaan. He said, I will not leave you 
until I have done what I promised you. That personal assurance given to Jacob, the confidence to leave the land of Canaan without fear of forfeiting the inheritance. It gave Jacob that confidence. On another level, the prophecy speaks of the ingathering from the exile. Though it may seem that Israel has been abandoned by God during the long centuries of exile and dispersion, God has never actually abandoned his people. He has kept them for himself in all places that have been scattered, and he will eventually recall Jacob's seed from the west, the east, the north, and the south. The Lord will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth, in Isaiah 11:12. He will send forth his angels with a great shofar, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other, it says in Matthew 28:31. They will be gathered from the lands, from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. Psalms 107.2 At that time, many from among the nations who have been blessed in Jacob's seed will also come. They will come from the east, from the west, from the north and the south, and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God, it says in Luke 13.29. Do you see how the scripture all ties together? This is one story, a Jewish story. And without that understanding, you cannot fully understand. Ha-Makom, which is the place, Genesis 28, 16 through 17. Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. Uh-oh. Um... This is the place. Jacob awoke from this dream frightened. He had seen a vision of the Lord, and it shook him deeply. God is a loving father, but he is also the terrifying Lord of all majesty. Before him, no flesh can stand. Perhaps for the first time in his life, Jacob realized who he was dealing with. It is possible to go through life with an abstract notion of God. But when coming face to face with the actual thing, it is a different matter altogether. For example, a man could have an intellectual knowledge that lions are terrifying, yet he will never experience that terror unless he finds himself being stalked by one. Only then will he properly understand the fear of lions. So too Jacob had a head knowledge of God. He had heard his father's stories and his grandfather's stories but he never actually encountered the living God. He realized he was on holy ground. God had appeared to him and the appearance of the deity in this hallowed place. Jacob declared, the Lord is in this place. Ha-mo-kom. How awesome is this place? The term makom, i.e. the place, became a, um, it's, it was a term for God's name. In the early rabbinic literature, the rabbis used Hamakom as an evasive synonym for the name of God. The unusual name reflects the mystical awareness of God's omnipresence. God can be found in every place because God is everywhere. As Jacob was leaving the land of God, he might have feared that the God of Abraham and Isaac would not be able to accompany him into another territory. The Lord assured him, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. Genesis 28:17. This is the first mention in the Bible of the house of God. 
The Hebrew word for house is bayit. The Hebrew word for God is Elohim, but it is often, often shortened to El. Jacob named the place where he had the dream Bet-El, which means house of God. The name is translated into English as Bethel. Genesis 28, 22, 20 through 22. Then the Lord will be my God. The problem is in the English translation. The Hebrew does not actually say, then the Lord will be my God. It says, and the Lord will be my God. And it seems like a self-centered bargain. If you will answer my prayers and do everything I ask, then I will let you be my God. It is like you have several other gods under consideration. Many people approach God with an attitude of entitlement. If God will answer their prayers and meet their demands, then they will favor him with the great privilege of accepting him. This is a sorry way to approach the king of the universe. God does not come to us hat in hand, begging for our affirmation. The man who properly understands his place in the scheme of things does not lay any contingencies on God. We should love, accept, trust, and obey God because he is who he is, the creator of the universe. Genesis 29:17 through 18. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Another picture of the latter. Here's the picture of. There it is. Rachel and Leah. The Torah says that Leah had weak eyes. Rachel, on the other hand, was beautiful. What does it mean that Leah had weak eyes? The Hebrew word translated here as weak can also mean delicate, tender, or soft. Some translations understand it in the sense of beautiful eyes. In that case, the Torah would be saying, Leah had beautiful eyes, but was not as attractive as her sister. Rashi explains that Leah's eyes were weak because she thought that she was destined to marry Esau and therefore was constantly crying. Indeed, the Art Scroll Stone Homage Commentary translates the beginning of 2917 as Leah's eyes were tender. It goes on to say that Leah's eyes were tender because she wept constantly in prayer that she would not have to marry Esau. The thought was that Rebekah's oldest son would marry Laban's oldest daughter and Rebekah's younger son would marry Rachel. I guess Jacob, by securing the blessing of Esau, was granted the oldest because of the blessing and the youngest just because of destiny. Laban, deceptively as we know, switched the daughters. He disguised Leah as Rachel. Just as Jacob had disguised himself as Esau to trick Isaac, the ruse worked. Jacob unintentionally married Leah. Many Orthodox Jewish communities today still have the tradition of completely veiling, veiling their bride on our wedding day. I hope I pronounced that right, on her wedding day. However, the bridegroom is allowed to lift the veil just before the ceremony to make sure he's marrying the right girl. Through Leah, Jacob sired Judah and Levi, who, turned, who in turn fathered the line of the Davidic monarchy and the Aaronic priesthood. However, never intended, he never intended to marry her, 
but the spiritual greatness of Israel came through her. Isn't that something? Genesis 29-25, themes in this. What is this that you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served you? Why then have you deceived me? The book of Genesis tells of a chain reaction of sibling rivalries. The rivalry between Jacob and Esau triggered a bride swap and subsequent competition between Laban's daughters. Rachel and Leah, they had a family feud and their grudge match was on their children. The competition between the sisters resulted in Joseph's abduction and the sale into Egypt. Centuries later, the powerful tribe of Ephraim championed the house of Rachel. The tribe of Judah stood for the house of Leah. Ephraim and Judah vied with one another just as their mothers had before them. They battled with one another. Leah said to Jacob, It is not the practice of our place to marry off the younger before the firstborn. I'm sorry, Laban said to Jacob, It is not the practice of our place to marry off the younger before the firstborn. The ancient Near East enjoyed stories about secondborns raising up and supplanting their firstborn sons. The Torah reflects this reality. Secondborn Abraham supplants Nahor. Secondborn Isaac supplants firstborn Ishmael. Secondborn Isaac, I'm sorry, secondborn Jacob supplants firstborn Esau. Secondborn Rachel supplants firstborn Leah. Judah and Joseph supplant Reuben. Ephraim supplants Manasseh. Genesis 29:30. We should not be too concerned that Jacob was polygamous. In Jacob's days, polygamy was common and culturally accepted. There are few ideal families in the Bible. Rachel and Leah competed with one another for Jacob's affection by means of childbirth. The competition gave birth to the 12 tribes of Israel. They took a cue from Jacob's grandmother, Sarah, and offered their handmaids to Jacob as concubines. That maneuver had the desired effect of increasing the size of their respected families, but it further damaged the family's moral cohesion. The Torah does not specifically prohibit polygamy, but neither does it endorse it. In the ancient Near East, as in most tribal cultures, Polygamy was regarded as a legitimate family arrangement. Social needs pressured man who had the ability to provide for more than one wife to do so. The Torah legislates around polygamy by way of concession to a social reality, not as a recommendation for healthy families. It's very difficult to have a healthy family with two wives. Polygamy is permissible, was permissible even in the apostolic era of Judaism but rarely practiced. The disciples of Yeshua did not permit polygamy because our master forbade the practice. Unless a man was husband of one wife, he did not qualify to serve as a deacon, elder, bishop, or teacher in the assembly of the Messiah. That was in 1 Timothy 3.2. Jacob's family was far from ideal, yet his children were the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise. His children were quite literally the children of Israel. In Genesis 29:31, it says that Leah was hated. Now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, as it says in one, one version, and he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. 
The Torah says that Leah was unloved. The Hebrew actually uses a stronger word. It says the Lord saw that Leah was hated. Hated. How could that be? Jacob went on to sire six sons through this hated wife. This helps to shed light on a difficult saying of Yeshua. In Luke 14, 26, he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. This just makes no sense. Shouldn't discipleship to Yeshua encourage us to love our family members? Doesn't the Bible teach us to honor our parents and love our spouses and our children? So how can Yeshua tell us that we need to hate our families in order to be a disciple? The Hebrew word for hate is called sinah. It is not always absolute. Sometimes it seems to show an order of preference. Let me, let me repeat that sometimes it simply shows an order of preference. Yeshua is saying that in order to be his disciples, we need to prioritize our commitment to him over that of our family members. We need to be devoted to, first to him and second to our families. This makes sense. After all, when he called his 12 disciples, they had to leave their careers and their families to follow him. The Gospel of Matthew preserves an alternate rendering of Yeshua's teaching about prioritization. Matthew ren renders it, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Matthew 10.37 There is no better way to properly love our family, family members than by placing our first and highest love with Yeshua. When we do so, we will find the source of perfect love from which we can lavish love upon our families. Plainly then, Yeshua does not ask us to hate our families just to put him first. In the same way, the statement that Leah was hated needs to be understood as a statement in, of an order of preference. It is not that Jacob hated Leah. Rather, as Genesis 29.30 makes explicit, he just loved Rachel more than Leah. In Genesis 31, Rachel had some distress now when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she became jealous of her sister and she said to Jacob, give me children or else I die. Childbearing is so important in the patriarchal society and as such, Rachel may be forgiven for her angst. Nevertheless, we can learn something from this short conversation between Jacob and Rachel. In the midst of life and circumstance, it is easy to lose perspective. Like Rachel, we might lash out at those around us, blaming them for things over which we have no control. Or we might even lash out at God. Rachel predicated her happiness on something she did not have. Rather than accept her situation as given from the hand of God, she let jealousy and discontent eat at her. She knew no peace. If a person lets his circumstances dictate his peace of mind, he will rarely have peace of mind. The Apostle Paul taught us to learn to be content in every situation, whether we have what we want or not. Rachel's solution to her barrenness was the same as Sarah's. She offered her maidservant, Bilah, to Jacob as a surrogate mother. Not to be outdone, Leah did the same with her maidservant, Zilpah. The children of Jacob were named by their mothers. 
Leah and Rachel named each of their children according to the significance each child had in their competition with each other. The names Leah gave to her sons are statements of faith and confidence in God and undying hope for her husband's affection. The names Rachel gives to her sons reflect her sense of inadequacy over her barrenness and her fierce jealousy of her sister. So each of the, you know, in, in, in um, Judaism, names mean something. Each name means something. I'm not going to go through every one of the names, but I'm going to go through a couple of them. Reuben means see a son. Leah believed that her son had been born to her because the Lord had seen that she was loved less than Rachel. Yehuda, which is Judah, means praise. The name Yehuda contains all the letters of the name of God. Leah said, in essence, praise God for my fourth son. We always say Levi, but if you look at the Hebrew, it would be pronounced Levi. Um, that means Levi comes from the Hebrew letters Leva, which means joined. Leah hoped that after giving birth to her three sons, her husband would finally find favor over her over her of her over her sister. So all the the children that were born to Leah, there were six of them, that's where, where Levi, which was the priesthood, came out of, and also Judah, which was the kingship, came out of. You are what you see. What you see is what you are. Genesis 30, 39. So the flocks mated by the rods, and the flocks brought forth stripes, speckled, and spotted. Jacob had a difficult relationship with his father-in-law Laban. Not only had Laban cheated him out of seven years of work by swapping his daughters on Jacob's wedding night, but he continued to change Jacob's wages throughout their working relationship. After the birth of Joseph, Jacob told Laban he was ready to leave. Laban did not want to lose Jacob because he knew that God was blessing and increasing his flocks only because Jacob was shepherding over them. So Laban agreed to start paying Jacob in livestock for his services. He agreed to give him all the striped, spotted, speckled, and dappled-born flocks. As Laban said, agreed, if it only will be as you say, so he removed that very day all the ringed and spotted he-goats and all the speckled and spotted goats. He tried to stack the deck against Jacob, and he left them in charge of his sons, and he put a distance of three days between himself and Jacob, and then Jacob tended Laban's flock. Jacob, Jacob's proposed deal was slanted in Laban's favor. By removing all the blemished livestock from the herd, it was almost assured that Jacob would not be able to accumulate a substantial herd, thus ensuring that Jacob would remain with Laban for a long time. But God had other plans. Jacob then... Um, got for himself rods of poplar and hazel and chestnut. He peeled the white streaks from them, laying bare the white rods, and he set up the rods which he had peeled in the watering receptacles to which the flocks came to drink. Then the flocks became stimulated by the rods, and the flocks gave birth to ring ones, speckled ones, and spotted ones. It says so in Genesis 30, 37 through 39. There's a lesson to be learned here. That which we place before our eyes impacts the inner person. When we view things that are shocking, disturbing, immoral, violent, or perverse, 
those images leave an impact on us. Sometime later, we give birth, as it were, through deeds, action, and speech patterned after the things that we've been placing before our eyes. For example, a person who watches television regularly cannot but help absorb the culture and values expressed on these television programs. The images he sees becomes a permanent part of his internal being because they are imprinted on his brain. The dialogue he hears begins to write new speech patterns in his mind. That is why King David declared, I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not go fastening in its grip on me. A perverse heart shall depart from me. I will know no evil. We are what we see. We are what we do. The Lord blessed Jacob by increasing his wealth in his flocks. That blessing incited the jealousy of Laban and his sons. Finally, Jacob heard the word for which he had been waiting. God appeared to him in a dream and said, Return to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. It was time for him to leave Laban and return to Canaan. That's about all the time I'm going to have because there's, there's still a lot more. <laughs> Torah portions are just full of stuff. Um, so next week we'll pick up at this point. We'll pick up where, um, where Jacob did leave Laban. And he reunites with, with uh, Esau next week. There's a lot of beautiful lessons in that. And a lot of, um, um, uh, a lot of, a lot of wisdom in the Torah. So let's, let's close, close with a prayer. Alvinu Malkenu, our Father, our King. Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for your Shabbat. May we be drawn nearer to you today in your service, my Father. May we all be enriched by your word. May it touch us. May it be who we are, Father. May your Torah penetrate our hearts that we may be yours, Father, and that we may show that we're yours to all those that come in contact with us. May those who see us see you in us in all that we do. In Yeshua's name I pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.